Welcome to This Week in Addiction Medicine, Special Edition. I'm Bob Davis, and this week we're joined by Dr. David E. Smith. Dr. Smith is a leader in the areas of addiction treatment, drug, psychopharmacology, and new research strategies in the management of substance use disorders. Dr. Smith founded the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinics in 1967, inaugurating the principle of healthcare as a right, not a privilege. Currently, Dr. Smith is chair of Addiction Medicine and Muirwood Adolescent and Family Services and Medical Director for Avery Lane Healing Center. Be sure to check out Dr. Smith's guest editorial in the ASAM Weekly entitled The Future of Psychedelic Therapy in Addiction Treatment. Welcome, Dr. David Smith. Thank you, Bob. Doctor, how was research on the therapeutic effects of psychedelics evolved over the past five years? Bob, there has been a dramatic expansion of the therapeutic use of psychedelics in the first five last five years. Um, there is characterized three phases of the psychedelic revolution. First psychedelic revolution actually began historically with the study of indigenous uh, hallucinogenic plants, but in terms of therapeutic use, peaked in the 50s and the early 60s with the use of LSD uh, and the treatment of alcoholism and other disorders. That was the time that uh, Bill Wilson, co-founder of AA, uh, took LSD for spiritual experience to deal with depression. So there was a lot of literature uh, on that. And uh, that is when I entered the field uh, in 1965. And my initial interest <clears throat> was in uh, studying psychedelics and their effects in groups and on the therapeutic process. The second psychedelic revolution actually uh, <clears throat> started here in the Haight-Ashbury and on the East Coast with Timothy Leary, the turn on, tune in, drop out phase in which very large numbers of young people took psychedelics. That's when you had the whole evolution of psychedelic music with the Grateful Dead. And uh, <clears throat> that's when you start seeing bad trips. And that was the era of make love, not war, which alarmed the government. They felt that uh, they didn't want psychedelics to turn young people into peace-loving people. They wanted them to be warriors. So they were very threatened by that. And they clamped down and made... Uh, psychedelic schedule one which is the highest uh, scheduling uh, that's like where heroin is that killed therapeutic research for the most part some of it continued underground but not in any sort of controlled fashion the third psychedelic revolution began in part the work of MAPS, the uh, Multidisciplinary Psychedelic Association, and MDMA, then ketamine. Now there's just been an explosion uh, up here at UCSF. They have a psilocybin research center. 
some of the major centers such as John Hopkins uh, has centers. Uh, the aspect of it that begins is with refractory conditions that have been refractory to standard methods such as uh, serious depression, PTSD, uh, and, and in fact, the interesting aspect, like all acceptance in the mainstream, the ones that are the leading advocates of the use of psychedelics like psilocybin for PTSD are the veterans that have come back from war, uh, severely traumatized. Now you're beginning to see the use of the psychedelics such as uh, psilocybin and one that's more readily available uh, because it's already used for other purposes, ketamine. Uh, the FDA has ruled that this is a breakthrough therapy and have issued guidance for studies. Some have criticized the mm -hmm. studies of being too restrictive, but my belief is uh, being in recovery myself is progress, not perfection. We're starting to see a breakthrough into the mainstream of, uh, of medicine. And it's still quite controversial in the addiction field and in the 12-step community. That's the interface that we are working on here through in San Francisco through our Haight-Ashbury Psychedelic Center, the use of psychedelics to facilitate recovery from addiction. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the significance of the FDA granting that breakthrough designation? The FDA granting breakthrough on that designation, they give guidelines for uh, the research. In effect, what they're saying is this is a valid therapy. And if it's a valid therapy, then... Schedule one has uh, high abuse potential and no therapeutic use. As soon as there is therapeutic use, uh, then it will come out of, uh, by definition, out of schedule one. Now, that's a political process. But when they say high abuse potential, actually, uh, these medications are not dopaminergic. They're not addicting. Uh, there's very limited chronic use. There is some psychiatric uh, adverse reactions, but in control settings, that's very low. So the FDA saying this is a breakthrough therapy is, in a certain sense, the beginnings of proof of concept. And that is uh, the whole beginning of both the research and the clinical use. So many of the people say, I'm not going to use a medication unless it's FDA approved. Uh, and, the, and moving in that direction, what I hope will happen is you'll have uh, well-trained designated psychedelic centers uh, where individuals can come for conditions that have proved refractory to other methods. For example, head-to-head -head studies here at UCSF with psilocybin and classic antidepressants indicate at six months, uh, the psychedelics are superior to uh, classic antidepressants. Uh, 
and there is a spirituality index. They have enhanced spirituality, which is a very interesting concept because spirituality is a very key part of recovery from addictive disease. That's hotly debated in ASAM, but the group of us uh, that are called like-minded doctors believe that this spirituality is a key part of the total uh, improvement and quality of life. And uh, so we'd like to get the, the view of this as psychedelic medicine. This is a medication. Mm. Uh, and society and many of the people in ASAM view it as a drug. Well, there's a lot of use of psychedelics in society, but we want to get it viewed as a as a as a medication. Mm-hmm. And in AA, they say don't play doctor. If a physician prescribes it for a refractory comorbid condition, you don't have to change your sobriety date. Uh, be no different than taking a classic antidepressant. In fact, that's one of the reasons that uh, Robin Kaharthite Harris at UCSF started studying that, because with the psilocybin research, you have uh, two to four intensive sessions followed by in-depth uh, integrative therapy. And he looked at uh, when you take an antidepressant like an SSRI, you take it on a daily basis. And he looked at why this medication would work uh, when you don't have continuous receptor site occupancy. And there's some absolutely fascinating research now on psilocybin, on how uh, how it stimulates the release of BDNF, uh, brain-derived neurotropic factor, and helps regrow uh, atrophied subcortical dendrites uh, looking at why it has this antidepressant effect so why are set and setting so important for psychedelic treatment well set and setting has been historically studied in depth uh actually beginning in the latter phases of um the first psychedelic revolution here on the west coast it was described as the kind of the humanistic approach to psychedelic therapy. Uh, at, we have an, uh, an organization here called PEAK out of UCSF called Psychedelic Athenogen Research Council, where they have worldwide speakers. And they talked about uh, LSD was discovered by Albert Hoffman, and it was first used in, in Europe. And they viewed it initially in certain settings like France as like electroshock therapy. They would give them LSD and strap them down and think that its effect was electroshock therapy. On the West Coast, they looked at the interaction of all the state of consciousness with the environment set in your uh setting and your particular uh, uh, psychological set. And they found that that was 
much more beneficial on the long term. Originally, they thought, uh, and uh, particularly in Europe, that these were like model psychotogens. That you would have a psychotic experience, and then that was the thing that was therapeutic. Uh, it turns out that they don't duplicate a psychotic experience. They alter their perception of environment and integrate uh, it's, it's, it's called breaking through to the other side, a sense of oneness, uh, breaking through the isolation. Uh, instead of I'm alone and I'm separate from my environment, you become part of your environment. There's a number of studies now that have integrated that individuals that have had the psychedelic experience have an altered perception of nature, altered perception of music, They've documented this with a combination of brain scans and set in the setting. So when you look at, the, for example, at the UCSF's uh, psychedelic center, uh, they put on, uh, you know, a mask and play gentle music that individual likes. It's very soothing. And then all uh, 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 turns out that whatever reason you take it, other stuff comes up. Mm -hmm. uh, it is found that it breaks through to repressed traumas. They found mm -hmm. out that uh, that in the subcortical region of the brain, you have repressed traumas. And then when you open up that area of the brain through psychedelics and actually can visualize these changes in, in the brain, then these repressed memories come up. It's actually quite fascinating. It's not just a generational trauma, but intergenerational trauma. And so in the integrative uh, therapy uh, processes that, and uh, that's a particular area of interest in terms of the relapsing substance abuser. Mm -hmm. It turns out that are a lot of the individuals that have gone into standard treatment, uh, stabilized, look like they're doing well, then relapse, it's because they have unresolved long-term trauma that they've not dealt with. Clearly in AA, which I'm very involved in, uh, that comes up in a searching spiritual, a moral inventory, a spiritual awakening, seventh, eighth, ninth step, so the psychedelics uh, aim at those same areas. And in fact, the, the, the groups that are involved in 12-step and uh, psychedelics are called spiritual awakening groups, which is, uh, I find quite fascinating because they use psychedelics to actually enhance individuals' ability to work the steps. And many of the patients that I have seen do well in the beginning but they have a really hard time with the searching moral inventory seventh eighth ninth step and it, it, it's interesting how these groups uh actually use the psychedelics to enhance their working with the steps that is very controversial mm -hmm. but i look at uh what this new iterative modality has to teach us because the substance abuse problem is getting much worse. We have to have new thinking. 
anybody that says I have the answer has been around long enough. With all that we know, the uh, all the treatment programs I've been involved in, the problem is skyrocketing. The death rate is skyrocketing. The alcoholism rate is skyrocketing. The problem in adolescence is skyrocketing. So we need... Uh, uh, you view addiction as a brain disease. You have to have new approaches that complement the proven approaches to try to get a better outcome. What is the importance of having a so-called guide in psychedelic therapy sessions? A guide is very crucial. In the session, what happens is you have preparation where you meet with the guide. The guide has certain questions. What are your expectations? I think part of the problem with so much in the press, individuals say, oh, psilocybin, I'll just go out and take it. You know, that's happened a lot at Silicon Valley. You know, I'll be the next Elon Musk if I just take psilocybin and then it doesn't work or they have an adverse reaction. That's kind of the social cultural use. Uh, you, you wouldn't just go out and take a medication without guidance. And the psychedelic guide uh, is uh, very important. There are guidelines for it, preparation. It's not one-on-one -on -one therapy. It's not like coming in and seeing your psychiatrist for 15 minutes and getting a prescription. Uh, it's what are your expectations? Uh, what is your culture? What is your background? What are the things that are likely to pop up that you're unexpected for? And then you have the actual session itself and the sessions they're very interesting because you have a, 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 a very supportive setting you have music that's relevant to your own culture i i took psilocybin for ptsd from a very bad athletic injury and I have a Native American background, so my guide selected the Comanche choir, the Native American music. Others that might have a Jewish background, whatever ethnicity background, uh, they might select a totally different music. So the selection of music is very important. And then you have to have uh, who is in the uh, the, the setting you can have the facilitator and in general they have one other individual there uh, that helps with it and then you have to have a, a a planned session and a reintegration phase and turns out is no is no withdrawal uh you know, there, you know maybe some uh, a sleepless night because all this stuff has come up and then you go into the reintegration phase and then very often the reintegration phase is one-on-one, -on -one, although there's a move now towards reintegration groups, which I quite find, find quite fascinating. That's some of what we're doing here. You know, what, and then in the settings where we talk down bad trips, like this is a social cultural, I just find it fascinating. Everybody goes to these burning men, they take psychedelics and they dance. And then suddenly some of them have a bad trip. And then Zendo doesn't just talk them down like we did with rock medicine. They work them through it. 
It's not talking them down, it's talking it through, it's called Zendo. So there's a huge amount of underground interaction with this very expansive psychedelic community that's it's occurring that is happening. A lot of the mainstream doesn't understand it. And my concern is uh, I don't want to criminalize, but I don't want it out of control. I guess the concern that we have is a lot of these big corporations want to take over and then psychedelics are for everybody. Uh, I, we don't like that thinking. But again, I'm in a very kind of narrow focus path on advancing psychedelics as medicine. Can you elaborate more on what the trauma cone is and how it's affected by psychedelics? The trauma clone is a uh, clinically derived term that actually can be imaged. Uh, when the individual experiences severe trauma, they can't think about it all the time. Therefore, the brain buries it into the subcortical regions. And there was some interesting research by Robin Kaharthite Harris, where he shows that there's kind of a serotonin coating around that area of the brain. And it actually looks like a cone. It's encapsulated, but it leaks. And my patients, I say, it's like uh, radioactive material that's encased in lead, but it leaks with, and out comes depression, anxiety, uh, fear. Uh, you don't know why you're afraid of this particular thing because you don't realize that that particular thing reminds you when you got drunk or got the crap beat out of you, uh, particularly when you were young. So what psychedelics do is helps dissolve that coating of the trauma cone and all this comes to consciousness. And it can be quite scary, but then you're able to deal with it. It's also a lot of what happens in therapy, what happens in 12 steps. Uh, psychedelics are just a way of doing it rapidly. When you do it rapidly, you have to be sure you're prepared to deal with it because that's when individuals start crying, freak out. Uh, that's what the integration therapy is. And that's also, it turns out, we found us what a bad trip is. You know, you go to a Grateful Dead concert and you take a, a psychedelic and your goal is to dance and have fun. And then suddenly you have... Uh, you know, synesthesia, one sensory modality translates to another, uh, everything's moving around, all these thoughts and emotions come up that you didn't anticipate, and then you come in and you're very upset. So one of the ways of dealing with it is to uh, talk to an individual down so he stabilizes it. Another way is to talk them through it. But in the therapeutic session, you let those emotions out and talk about how they can be integrated and how they were associated with the difficulties that you, emotional difficulties you've had and uh, behavioral problems that you've had. 
What factors should practitioners use in determining whether or not a patient is a good candidate for psychedelic treatment? They are now developing guidelines. What we would call in pharmaceutical trials is exclusion criteria. And the one clear-cut exclusion criteria is the past history of psychosis. Uh, the individuals that have a history of psychosis, like schizophrenia, the neurobiology and the clinical experience is that these are this approach is not effective and may make things worse. Um, that was kind of different from the original thinking where they thought of them as model psychotogens and they could reduplicate it. But uh, remember, all of this is when traditional methods fail. And we've got uh, medications and therapies for psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. And you, you don't do this therapy unless the traditional therapy has reached a dead end. The, these medications uh, and this particular approach is produced, uh, all the evidence is uh, for PTSD, uh, depression, existential crisis, uh, of death and dying. There's some fascinating studies on survivor guilt for death and dying and AIDS patients. But there's also all sorts of new stuff that is really uh, interesting. They uh, have a trial at UCSF on Parkinsonism. And it turns out that a lot of the problem with these neurological disorders is uh, relates to uh, fear and anxiety. Uh, now, those are early trials. I do not know, you know how they'll prove out. There's a whole other trial on the use of psychedelics without the, the psychic experience. Is the, is the antidepressant uh, affect the regrowth of these uh, subcortical dendrites? And at UC Davis, they're developing, uh, they're, they're, they're separating the antidepressant effect from the intense uh, psychological spiritual effect. I, I, I'm i open to that research. Uh, it is not anything that I've been familiar with. What I have seen is individuals, for example, that have a substance abuse disorder, have a spiritual experience, and uh, suddenly they look at themselves as, in a different way. They're not the relapsing, failed alcoholic addict that has to continue to use uh, uh, they see their drug of choice just go drifting by. They can resist craving because they just feel they're a different person. That's what I'm used to, and that's what I'm interested in. But I can't, as a physician, I can't, you know, say this this research isn't valid. Some of my psychiatrist friends say there's individuals that need it, but they're afraid of the the psychological experience and if you could knock out the psychological experience from the regrowing of subcortical dendrites that would be interesting interesting it's not the thing that i'm particularly interested in but science this is a fascinating drug group and it will as it moves ahead it will raise more questions than there are answers
So what other questions do we still have about the use of psychedelics and their mechanism of action? The research is absolutely fascinating on this. They did a big study of ayahuasca in Brazil for um, the uh, 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 bipolar. And they found out that it produced a surge in this uh, BDNF and help regrow subcortical dendrites. That the classical psychedelics are called 5-HT2A receptor uh, agonists. And trauma is a 5-HT2 receptor antagonist. In other words, that's kind of the lock on the trauma cone. Psychedelics unlock the trauma cone and out it comes. But the question is, what the therapeutic value of that is. So I think the, 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 the neurobiology is what I quite find quite fascinating. Now, when you go to these big sessions, uh, all, you know, there's the indigenous and there's the clinicians and they say, I don't really care how it works. I just want it to work, but I understand. But my experience has been if the medical community understands how a medication works in the brain and its beneficial effects on the brain, then they're more likely to accept it. And that, that's my particular goal is to mainstream psychedelics as a medicine. So I find the neurobiological research absolutely fascinating and is telling us so much. And by the way, it's interesting that they found out that to a lesser degree, ketamine does the same thing. Uh, although it has a somewhat different mechanism of action, uh, they're finding that this broad range of drugs like ketamine, MDMA, uh, psilocybin, ayahuasca have, uh, a somewhat similar mechanism of action in terms of its impact on the brain. Uh, but of course, the indigenous culture, they've been doing this for centuries. And I think that at this big MAPS conference, they kind of protested big pharma. Uh, they said, you're ripping off our indigenous rights. So you got when you get involved in this area, it gets way more complicated than anything you've thought of. It gets into the law. They've got this decriminalized nature group going on here. Why should you criminalize a plant like psilocybin? Why should a plant be schedule one? Then you got the indigenous culture, and then you got the clinical group. Uh, absolutely fascinating. We have these psychedelic roundtables here at our. Uh, Ashbury Psychedelic Center and through Peak at uh, the San Francisco Psychedelic Art Museum. We meet quarterly and people share their different experiences all the way from the lab to the clinical to the indigenous. Uh, it, it's a fascinating area, but again, my position is I wanna, I'm interested in all this. Uh, I study it, I learn a lot about it, but my position is to focus on getting it viewed as psychedelic medicine for the treatment of refractory disorders that are escalating. Dr. David Smith, it's been a pleasure speaking with you this afternoon, and thank you for joining us this week.
Thank you, Bob. I love ASAM Weekly. Uh, read it every every week. It's just a tremendous addition to uh, our addiction medicine field.